Welcome to this latest Cambridge University Press podcast. I'm Michael Watson, publisher for History at Cambridge University Press, and today I'm talking to Gabriel Rosenfeld, Professor of History at Fairfield University and the author of a fascinating new book on the Fourth Reich, The Spectre of Nazism from World War II to the Present. Many thanks, Gabriel, for joining us today to talk about your book. Happy to be here, Michael. I think many readers will be intrigued by the premise of the book, above all, writing a history of something which has thankfully never occurred. And so I thought it would be interesting to start with how you came to write such a book as opposed to, say, a more conventional history of the Third Reich or the post-war era. Sure. Well, in my uh, career researching the history and the memory of Nazi Germany and what's usually called the Third Reich, I very frequently came across references to a Fourth Reich, which in many cases was very ill-defined or used just as a vague uh, symbol of some kind of frightening future possibility. Um, And while I didn't exactly uh, storehouse or catalog all those examples over time, um, as I was following reports in the European media in the wake of the 2008 financial crash uh, and started seeing how Angela Merkel's government was being accused of being a Fourth Reich or how in the British press the EU was being stigmatized as potentially being a sign of a Nazi resurgence in the form of a Fourth Reich, I started to become more curious about the history of the term. And of course, thanks to new kinds of opportunities for research with uh, digital search engines and so forth, um, it became quite apparent to me that once one uh, starts to research the history of a concept, uh, you can really go pretty far back in time. Uh, And I basically turned it into a new book project to research the origins of the concept and its post-war evolution. Yeah, so it's important to note, too, it it is a different kind of undertaking, because obviously you're you're known for your work on counterfactual history in the past, aren't you? But it's, it's, it's very much a different thing this time, isn't it? Yes. So this is a book that actually um, tries to combine three different approaches to the writing of history. It's, on the one hand, a conventional intellectual and cultural history of a concept, or what the Germans would call Ideengeschichte, or just the history of ideas. But it's also a a work of memory studies and a work of, I guess what I would call, applied counterfactual history. Because I'm not only interested in exploring the origins of this idea, this frightening potential of a Fourth Reich, but I'm trying to assess the larger question of whether all the fears of a Fourth Reich were legitimate or whether they were ultimately uh, exaggerated for no purpose. And of course, we know that no Fourth Reich ever came into being. So by definition, uh, the fears were uh, exaggerated to some degree. But by looking at how close uh, Germany came at certain moments to maybe falling victim to a Nazi upsurge after World War II, by looking at different what-if possibilities, uh, I make the argument that many of the people who were afraid of a Fourth Reich were not afraid for nothing, and that in many respects, this fear had a salutary purpose in post-war European history. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought um, maybe looking at that sort of at the applied counterfactual, I mean, I think it's interesting the kind of mixed reactions within the history field you do get to sort of counterfactuals. I mean, you quote the eminent authority Hugh Trevor Roper as saying, um, history is not merely what happened, it is what happened in the context of what might have happened. But, you know, it, it does seem some people are quite reluctant to kind of go down that path. Oh, it's a fa- that's one of my favorite quotes by Trevor Roper, by all means. Um, it's really a, a sign of the fact that we can't understand what happened without understanding what might have happened, what could have happened, what maybe even should have happened. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, as I'm uh, realizing increasingly now in a new book project I'm working on, which is essentially tracing the history of counterfactual thought in Western civilization, dating all the way back to the ancient Egyptians, Hebrews, Greeks, Romans, 
through the Middle Ages into the early modern period in Machiavelli, and it goes on and on. But um, while many scholars have dismissed counterfactual thinking as unhistorical or not worthy of the historical profession, or what E.H. Carr famously said, you know, something only worthy of cocktail party banter, uh, by definition, drunken cocktail party banter, uh, I'm trying to show how, in fact, the major philosophers and <clears throat> thinkers and historians and sociologists uh, of the Western tradition have routinely used what-ifs in their uh, writings. And if you actually historicize the moments in time when those kinds of what-if speculations were increasingly popular or numerous, uh, and when they ebbed, by contrast, um, you see some really interesting um, patterns in the sort of long durée context of seeing thousands of years of uh, patterns coming and going. And I'm, I'm hoping in the context of this new work, uh, which of course relates to the Fourth Reich as well implicitly, uh, to show that really um, what's been maligned for so many generations deserves to be taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that comes out really clearly in the book. You can see the ebbs and flows over the, over the entire sort of post-war era, can't you? Absolutely. So, for example, when you talk about the Fourth Reich um, in the context of early post-war European history, by far and away, that was a fear that was restricted to Germany. Uh, and the fear, of course, on the part of the uh, American and British occupying forces in the years 45, 46, 47, was that even though Hitler had committed suicide and the Germans uh, had formally surrendered, that there might be um, bands of unrepentant Nazis who wanted to launch an insurgency. And in fact, in the years 45, 46, there was the famous werewolf insurgency um, that did pose a threat um, to Allied forces which already began at the very end of the war, um, but it continued to be something that even Dwight Eisenhower was very concerned with, um, and it never turned into anything. But I started asking the question, well, might it have? Um, were there any moments in time when things could have gone quite differently? And in part because we know that in the context of the American occupation of Iraq, um, Saddam Hussein's defeat did not bring peace whatsoever, but in fact launched a many-year-long insurgency, both by Sunni and Shiite rebels, I sort of started to wonder, might that have also taken place in Germany, and where were the true differences? Uh, so in the book, I explore some counterfactual scenarios where, in fact, the werewolf insurgency might have been more dangerous and threatening, or for that matter, other um, neo-Nazi efforts to promote coups or large rebellions uh, in 1946 and 47. There was, for example, the famous Hitler Youth uh, Rebellion. There was a later rebellion in 47 of former SS commanders and Wehrmacht officers. And in each of these cases, allied um, intervention suppressed what could have become a problem. But a lot of these um, threats really persisted into the early 1950s in the Federal Republic of Germany uh, until Adenauer was, re -elect was elected, well, re-elected in 53 and then uh, 57. Only in the late 50s did the sphere of a Fourth Reich start to disappear um, in the minds of British observers, American observers, Israeli observers, um, with the stabilization of West Germany. And then um, we can talk about it perhaps more uh, in our discussion, but um, you, you do see that fear of a Fourth Reich leaving the German context and becoming increasingly applied to other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I, th I think above all, what, what that brings back is a, a sense of contingency, isn't it? It's, it's that, you know, democracy was very tenuous. I mean, you, you make the um, parallel to Iraq and, you know, you can see how, you know, complicated the process of um, democratization is. And um, it's really, it, it is that sense that things could have could have gone very differently. And I think further that um, you sort of suggest that that kind of fear, it's, it's, it was sort of helpful in many ways in kind of sort of focusing and getting people to sort of commit the necessary resources. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, 
when Germany reunified in 1989-90, um, there was this sense that after 40 years of division, finally Germany could look back on its post-war history with pride because at the end of the day, a very painful uh, multi-decade experience of division had received a happy ending. Um, and so for a decent decade after around uh, the 80s and into the 90s, many German historians wrote what was called an Erfolgsgeschichte of Germany's post-war history. That's to say German history as a success story, where um, it was more or less seen that democratization was inevitable, that any bumps in the road were meant to merely be nuisances and annoyances as opposed to anything more serious. Um, and what I tried to um, question in this book is the idea that really this sense of inevitability was so definite. Um, since the turn of the millennium and the emergence of new problems in present-day German life, whether economically, socially, politically, uh, there's been a new attempt to try and recognize that there were some gray zones or some darker spots in post-war German history. Um, and not everything was uh, a triumphalistic story of success. Um, and in order to try and understand the roots of present-day problems, we have to understand that maybe, in fact, not everything that took place in Germany was done so well. And some things that um, I point out in the book are, uh, in, in fact, relating to the question of whether post-war Nazis were given too soft a treatment after the war uh, and whether that maybe paved the way for some of Germany's later problems. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you mentioned a, a moment ago um, about you know, that, that sort of transition in the book, you know, that there's this sort of marked sort of step change with um, this moving from a, a particularly German phenomenon to a much more kind of universalized phenomenon. And I think that's really one of the most distinctive things about the book is combining those those two scales. And so, yeah, so maybe if you could say something about, you know, why it was, you know, because it's not obvious that it would have become sort of universalized. Sure. I mean, I think the, to go to just wrap up that the previous question, I think it's really important for us to not take history for granted because the sense of inevitability or any kind of determinism in post-war Germany's rec uh, democratization would lead us to become complacent uh, and overlook the fact that not everything that took place was so easy to accomplish uh, and we shouldn't rest on our laurels. We should always be aware of things that might stand in the way of democratization. And of course, because we're living in a world of increasing right-wing political activity, whether it's right-wing populism or neo-fascism, um, the question, of course, remains, how can we be uh, continuous, continuously vigilant and um, non-complacent about um, making sure that democracy is reinforced, democracy is reinforced? And I think the way that um, this is visible in the book is that um, while Germany had stabilized by the mid-1960s and most people were less concerned about a neo-Nazi resurgence, um, they started to worry, uh, specifically in the context of the United States, that fascism was rearing its ugly head there. Mm -hmm. What I point out in the book is that talk of a Fourth Reich was increasingly now applied to the U.S. context, um, starting in the 1960s during the context of the um, Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, um, the fact that a new generation of um, left-leaning students and black nationalists was coming up, were coming onto the scene. Um, and starting to, in fact, uh, make the accusation that while Germany might be free of the stain of fascism, fascism was emerging in the U.S. Uh, and so, of course, you find Holocaust terminology and Nazi analogies being applied to the bombing of the Viet Cong, the use of napalm. Of course, all of Nixon's inner circle uh, were oftentimes uh, dismissed as or attacked as a Fourth Reich. Black writer James Baldwin famously talked about the prospect of concentration camps going up in Philadelphia and New York City, uh, because at this point in time, the polarization and the politicization of uh, 
American society was so extreme that um, the fears that many people had at the time that the country was going in a very right wing direction, not to mention all the backlash against the civil rights movement and the founding of the American Nazi Party under George Lincoln Rockwell, all these things lent credence to the possibility that fascism really wasn't a German problem only. It could exist anywhere, leading to uh, the uh, Fourth Reich extending its application. Yeah, so I was interested. So take your um, typical sort of U.S. college student, you know, campaigning maybe against the um, Vietnam War. So, yeah, so what did the, you know, the Fourth Reich also, I guess, implicitly the Third Reich mean to them? And where did those meanings come from? Well, I mean, partly it has to do with the fact that um, the world became newly aware of the crimes of the Third Reich in the early 1960s with the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Israel. And of course, he was famously uh, executed. Um, but with further war crimes trials uh, in the mid-1960s, say in Frankfurt, um, with Auschwitz trial um, and with the spread of television, of course, in that same period, uh, many people across the world were starting to awaken to the fact that um, the Nazi uh, crimes were of, you know, uh, unprecedented magnitude. Uh, and when they started to then see further signs of atrocities taking place elsewhere, um, whether it was, again, the bombings in Vietnam by the American Air Force, or whether it was the uh, dictatorship of the Greek military junta uh, in the late 60s, you start to see the term Fourth Reich really being spread across the board to any uh, potential zone of right-wing or perceived right-wing um, activity. And so the German connection becomes loosened uh, and as a way of kind of um, mobilizing people to protest present day threats. Um, the idea of a Fourth Reich differed from a Third Reich because the Third Reich was consigned to the past and it had collapsed in 1945. But by definition, the, the adjective fourth makes it clear that either there's a new present example of a Reich or a future one that's imminent. And so we really have to marshal our forces if one is a student activist of any kind or black nationalist and wants to draw attention to present day problems. That's really a good way of galvanizing people with a slogan that's extremely powerful at the rhetorical level. And so this was something that was particularly pronounced in the 60s. So it, it, did it sort of ebb in the 1970s? Well, in the 1970s, what you actually find, interestingly enough, is a new example of normalization, by which I mean the um, broadening of the term Fourth Reich beyond merely the borders of Germany to a larger realm. Um, the 1960s represents a phase of universalization where it's really a political focus um, to any combat zone or zone of conflict in the world. And in the 70s, what you find is something called aestheticization, by which I mean um, the, third, the Fourth Reich becomes a trope in Western popular culture, in television shows, films, uh, thriller novels of all kinds, comic books. Uh, and you find, um, partly as a reflection of current political concerns, um, the Fourth Reich becoming uh, a staple of detective fiction, mysteries, and all kinds of other pop culture um, artifacts, which I also, in, in the fifth chapter of the book, chronicle at some length to also show how really from the mid-60s to the mid-80s, there was an equivalent to what's been called the Hitler wave uh, within Western popular culture, um, where the Fourth Reich is just everywhere. Uh, and it was a big money-making uh, opportunity for publishers and filmmakers, uh, and it further helped cement the concept in Western popular consciousness, I argue. Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting. I think it's, at one point you you note how um, um, I think there's there was a sort of Cold War thaw, um, and you know Russian spies temporarily fell out of fashion, and um, you know the sort of Nazis filled the gap. Yeah, in the early '70s with detente and 
Nixon's visit to China and the end of the Vietnam War, um, in a sense, the publishing market was experiencing a, vacu a vacuum of villains, if I could put it in those terms. Uh, and the Nazis, of course, filled in quite nicely uh, because still at that point in time, not so much today, I guess, but everyone uh, could agree on the ability to hate Nazis and see them as the epitome of evil. Uh, and at this point in time, of course, there's this larger fascination with the biography of Adolf Hitler, and it's the first generation, really, of true Holocaust scholarship coming into its own. So it really fit the times um, in that context. And so Nazi villains and Nazi iconography and what Susan Sontag called the fascinating aspects of fascism were really everywhere in the 1970s. And it's um, the Fourth Reich has been an understudied aspect of that larger phenomenon. But what I tried to do is track down every single novel and film and comic book that invoked the concept and found and tried to identify what the larger patterns were uh, for how the term was being used and how it was um, increasingly being aestheticized. Yes, because you, you, you talk about the kind of stock, you know, the nature of the stock characters and the kind of, you know, particular aspects of the, of, you know, the individuals that were drawn out. Sure. And they become highly formulaic and repetitive. And what initially was a draw and an attraction ended up becoming stale and overused. Um, you know, like any bubble, like any economic bubble eventually pops. By the time you get into the early 1980s, um, and, you know, this is in the wake, of course, of the, um, uh, the heightening of Cold War tensions after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the American uh, Olympic boycott in Moscow in 1980. Um, at a certain point, uh, Nazis outlived their usefulness, uh, and they were replaced once again by um, the red thread of, of communism. But for a good two decades, really, I argue, um, the Nazis were, were, were quite useful um, for uh, the purposes of commercial culture. And as we may speak about in a little bit as well, um, while that peters out in the 1980s, um, German reunification, of course, and the threat associated with German unification uh, ended up reactivating the fear of a Fourth Reich um, all across Europe. Uh, and that really was only a couple, year of, couple years of a, of, a, of a hiatus until it got reactivated. Yes, because I mean, you talk about that very much in the context of the kind of right wing press um, attitudes towards the EU. Um, so, so that's something you know very much in that pattern of sort of fears, anxieties. Um, you could see, you know, sort of on the British right, for instance, um, about a kind of resurgent Germany and what that might mean. For sure, you already see it uh, when Thatcher was still prime minister, with some of her advisors um, floating fears of a possible Fourth Reich emerging from German unification. And of course, while uh, she wasn't in office much longer, um, those fears extended throughout the 1990s. Um, among uh, conservative uh, British observers and, and, and newspapers that were constantly uh, complaining about the EU being just a surrogate example of German, Germany flexing its economic power in a political sense. And, uh, you know, as the uh, EU unification process rolled on um, after the turn of the millennium, uh, some of those fears faded, especially in 2005, if I'm not mistaken, in 2006, when Germany hosted the World Cup, and Germany was seen all of a sudden as less of a threat. Um, but then, of course, we all know that with the return of economic crisis in 2008, um, all bets were off, and you see, um, you know, really what's been a consistent um, argument on the part of certain uh, figures, not only in, in among British conservatives, but elsewhere in Europe, where the Fourth Reich has been reanimated as a cudgel to, to beat Germany over the head with. And I mean, also, what's very evident at the moment is the um, contemporary phenomenon of sort of right wing populism and, you know, act actual sort of um, neo fascism um, that you can see you sure. know, in, in Europe. And um, so, you know, are, 
is are there kind of those contemporary resonances then? Right. I mean, it's it's interesting because on the one hand, you'll have the Russian state media on various websites associated with Putin um, complaining that the EU is a Fourth Reich or they will attack the Ukrainians as a Fourth Reich or Russian media sources will attack the U.S. as a Fourth Reich. Um, and there's not a whole lot of consistency there. It's just a slur. Um, and you'll have Polish nationalists accusing Germany of being a Fourth Reich. So on the right, it's definitely a, a term of convenience. But you also have left-wing populists um, in Greece, for example, lots of protesters and even the Syriza regime uh, had employed the Fourth Reich from a different political perspective to attack Merkel's austerity policies and the price that the Greeks had to pay for them. So it's in a way politically ecumenical to use the term Fourth Reich as a, as a, as a slur. On the other hand, you also have some right-wing groups who are actually flirting uh, in an aspirational sense with the Fourth Reich as an, as an actual desired future outcome. Um, so some German nationalists associated um, with the Deutsches Klag, um, with the uh, Pegida movement, with the AFD, uh, have some connections to Fourth Reich symbolism and arguments. Um, you also in the United States have uh, right-wing um, neo-Nazis dreaming of a Fourth Reich, admittedly at this point online and in chat forums. Um, but it's still interesting that the term would be um, idealized by some and demonized by others. But it really is an all-purpose uh, term of usage at this juncture. Yes, I think that's the it's it's moving from the you know popular culture of um, fiction and things to the, I guess the world of social media. You know where like-minded people will find like-minded people. Sure, and in the Fourth Reich, it's been a political hot potato. It's been a cultural trope. Uh, it's becoming repoliticized now. Uh, and the, the irony, of course, is that when it first was invented in the 1930s, it was entirely viewed as a progressive uh, vision for a future democratic Germany. And it was a very much anti-Nazi uh, concept. Of course, it later became Nazified or re-Nazified. Um, but I think one of the things that the book does, uh, hopefully, is to clarify that there is no one consistent uh, signified, so to speak, of the signifier. The Fourth Reich has meant many different things at different points in time. And only by tracing the evolution of the term historically can we really truly understand it. I think that's right. It's this kind of infinitely malleable um, idea. And, you know, it certainly sounds as if it's not going to lose its relevance anytime soon. Um, so many thanks, Gabe, for those insights into the book. And obviously, listeners who want to read more can buy the book, which will be available very soon. And, um, yeah, it's a really terrific book and um, getting a lot of attention and lots of reviews and things. So um, that's terrific. Thank you very much, Gabe. Thanks so much, Michael.